Welcome to our fifth of our series of webcasts of the 10 laws of state and local government sales and marketing. This is our Ask Us Anything episode. This is Joe Morris, the Vice President of Research at eRepublic. Joining me today to discuss this topic and hopefully answer as many of your questions as possible are three of our industry experts, Julia Burroughs, Dustin Heisler, and Terry Takai. Julia is our director of the Governing Institute, but she's also a former deputy city manager and economic development director. We've got Dustin Heisler, who serves as our chief innovation officer, but is also a former local government chief information officer, and Terry Takai, who's our executive director for the Center for Digital Government, but has also been a former CIO for the U.S. Department of Defense, State of Michigan, and the State of California. So these three individuals and myself spend our days working with industry and government officials uh, and can help hopefully answer many of your most pressing questions around marketing and sales. But before we begin a little bit about eRepublic, if you're not familiar, eRepublic is a media and research organization that works with over 700 companies every year, some of the largest companies to startups that are looking to engage in this space. And they come to us um, to help them power their sales and marketing success. So we're gonna draw upon that today and hopefully share a little bit of some of that expertise through this interactive Q&A. We're also here because we are, uh, we've launched our 10 laws in state and local government marketing. If you haven't checked this piece of work out already, you can do so by uh, down, clicking the link down below and you'll have it in the resources on our eRepublic website. You can download the free ebook. It offers deep practical insight into what we found works when selling state and local government. It draws on the 30 years of experience that we as an organization have had and this webcast series is just another component of that. We're doing that because of the sheer size and scope of this market. As, as many of you know, or are hoping to find out, this market is large. Um, it employs over 19 million employees. The total market size is over $3 trillion. For those of you that sell into technology, you're roughly looking at about $100 billion a year in, in technology spend. So for an agenda today, we're gonna go over first our, our fourth law, um, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment, which is personal contact matters. Keeping in line with that law, that's why we wanted to do more of an interactive Q&A here today. When you registered, you had the capability to submit questions uh, during that process. I kind of grouped those questions together, so we're gonna start out by answering some of the top trending questions that we got through that registration process, and then we're gonna move into a live Q&A, where you can just fire away your questions, and, and this group will do the best we can to answer them. So let's dive right in with that fourth law of our 10 laws being personal contact matters. Prior to any procurement, be part of the conversations defining both the problem and the solution to government's challenges. Dustin, can you expand on this fourth law? Yeah, Joe, absolutely. I think there's three key takeaways here. Number one, you kind of, you started with it, which is you gotta be a part of the conversation to start. So that means you have to show up, you have to be able to build relationships, you have to use events and other networking opportunities to gain some visibility, to gain you know, relationships and really you know, be a part of that conversation at the beginning. You wanna use those opportunities, not just to sit behind a tabletop at an event, but you wanna use it to help identify and frame the challenges that the market is experiencing. So anytime you start a business or you're starting to build your state and local business practice, you know, it's always important to kind of go and do your research and understand contextually to the areas that you're looking at, what are their perceived, you know, pains that they have and, and how can you address those for them? So once you identify and frame those market challenges, that's where you use those opportunities in, in kind of these networking events and, and other types of opportunities to kind of build these personal relationships to help government understand how to solve those challenges. And that's really, you know, where you as an industry partner come to the table to help them do it. But you can't start with that. You have to get ahead of that and you have to, you know, focus on, you know, showing up and being visible, being a part of the conversation, using that to understand their pains. And they vary. I mean, you know, we do our CIO uh, surveys where we look at the top 10 priorities. And of course, that's the 10, you know, across the country. But as you dive into these hyper-local regions, you know, there may be more of a challenge in one region than another region. And so it's important to understand those nuances and being visible is, is one way to kind of go and start to build relationships to understand that and then use that to help identify opportunities to solve that for them and to help educate government on what's possible. And that's really where they lean on you as an industry expert. Don't wait for the RFP. 
get ahead of the RFP and help frame what the real solution is to these uh, challenges that they're facing. Right. A, there was a quote in the ebook, um, Terry, that you uh, kind of gave to us about CIOs being deluged with buzzwords uh, about products. Can you expand beyond what's on the screen right here? Sure, Joe, thanks. Uh, yeah, I think a couple of things that I would point out, and I wanna just build on the things that Dustin just mentioned. Um, you know, as you're talking to CIOs and as you're building that relationship, remember that that relationship is as much about you as an individual as it is about your products. And that's really what we mean when we say that they wanna have someone that they trust. And very often that personal relationship, as I mentioned, you know, it has to do with the company you represent, but it also has to do with you as an individual, how you approach them, how you talk with them, and just establishing a relationship in the same way that you would with someone that is a friend, quite frankly. Um, the other piece about it is that when you're talking about your product, be very careful to be very specific about not only what your product does, but in some cases, it's good to position your product in terms of where it is in the marketplace. And in some cases, you know, while you're not being negative about who your competition is, it's good to reference that. So my products uh, really you know, are the same as this set of products from this company, this set of products from that company, but we do a job in terms of integrating those products you know, and here's what you can get from those. Um, and so those kinds of references are, are really important. And the last thing that I would say is, you know, CIOs really appreciate it if you tell them also what your product doesn't do. I know that that's hard to do in many situations. It makes it sound like you're being negative about the product, but it also makes sure that you're coming across as someone that wants to help them from a solution perspective um, and thinking overall, and then being able to position your product as opposed to saying, my product will take care of everything. Because once you do that, the CIO knows that that isn't true um, and you damage your credibility. So we got a number of questions that came in uh, through the registration process. And I kind of grouped them into buckets because there were some commonalities across questions. And, and one of the common ones that came through was email, phone, referrals. Uh, which one were and are government officials most likely to respond to? So Julia, you know, as a deputy city, city manager, as a head of economic development, what were you most likely to, to respond to? Well, Joe, I'm, I'm going to put these in priority order. And the first one that I was most likely to respond to is a referral. And, and that's a two-part answer. The first is a referral from a colleague, a trusted peer in another city, another county. Um, of course, I'm going to respond to something if a peer has referred that to me. And the second referral is if I read something about the service or product, a best case scenario, best practice, you know, very active storytelling that was out there and um, either someone sent it to me, I was doing my research and my homework and basically it's a referral because the company has taken the time to share a success story. Um, second email, because I can answer that at any time, not just eight to five. And the third was by phone. Very difficult to respond um, to voicemail. So referral, email, phone is my priority order. Hey Dustin, I'm gonna I'm gonna toss one here that's not on the list. Uh, social media. You're the you know you're the innovation guy, but coming from your your past, uh, how likely is it that people are going to be using social to engage government officials, and is it effective? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I, I would not encourage that you friend a prospect on Facebook, but LinkedIn is a uh, another case uh, in itself. So. You know, social networks like LinkedIn are really great to go and, you know, understand your prospect and understand their needs. What are they sharing? And, and so I would, you know, encourage you to look at that. The one thing I would avoid is when you connect with someone on LinkedIn, you know, don't just have the generic, I'd like to add you to my network message. Talk a little bit about what you're interested in, uh, you know, kind of provide a little bit of a description as to, you know, why you're reaching out but don't send an email message right after you connect with someone. So I, I have, you know, vendors that do that to me even to this day where they'll send me an invite, I'll accept it. And then next thing you know, I get a generic copy paste, like three paragraph message about, am I available on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday of next week? So I would encourage you not to do that. So find ways to use LinkedIn to provide value back to them 
you know, maybe it starts by you commenting on some of the things that they're posting and, and, you know, explaining things that might be relevant to them or, you know, some of those best practices or use cases that might fit into some of the challenges that they have or that they might be describing on these platforms. And then if you do reach out to them using, you know, like LinkedIn in-mail messages, make it relevant and make it something that's contextual to just them because CIOs can see through, you know, anything that's just a copy-paste generic message. So if you're going to use that as a vehicle, it's a great vehicle, just make sure that it's uh, highly contextual and personalized to the individuals, not just by having their first name on it, but also by making it relevant to their agency, their role, you know, the, the research that you've done, maybe things that they've shared or articles that they've written or other types of things like that. So then that maybe this ties on to this next question, which is, was quite popular. Cold calls, cold emails, just cold contact in general. Yes or no? So Terry, your thoughts, likelihood on answering a cold email. In fact, before Terry has a chance to answer, I had a government official email me yesterday with a cold email that they got where the salesperson uh, referred to them by name, then offered to, if they take a bet on a sporting event, and if they, uh, if the prospect or the, the CIO were to win, he would gift them a dozen golf balls, violating the purchasing rules. Uh, and if they were, if the vendor were to win, the CIO would have to take a meeting from him. And then he referred to the CIO by the wrong name at the bottom of the email. So uh, we got some feedback that this is uh, still a very bad tactic. So. Uh, Terry, what are your thoughts on it? I agree, Joe. In fact, one of the things that I used to say is that Terry is short for Teresa. And so I know if I got an email that said, Dear Teresa, I mean, that one immediately went in the bin. I don't think that cold calls are that effective, quite frankly. Um, I think we all get so much email. Um, and so I don't think a cold call per se is effective at all. But the piece that I would say is that back to what Julia was saying and what Dustin was saying, if you can reference that back to a referral, if you can reference it back to a conversation, then I think it has the potential to have more impact. The last thing that I would mention, and this follows on to Dustin's comment on LinkedIn, is that it is helpful sometimes <coughs> to actually follow up a personal contact with a LinkedIn message that says, gee, I met you at this event. <coughs> I'd like to stay in contact, you know, um, and that, that may help to solidify mm -hmm. that personal relationship. So Dustin, any, any additional thoughts on, <laughs> on cold emails and cold calls? Yeah, you know, the ones that have broken through to me or have always been ones that, you know, the script or the email kind of tricks you through the subject line. And if you know, you get someone to open your message and then they immediately delete it or it annoys them, you know, it's not mission accomplished. So I, I think it's better to nurture the relationship. And, you know, this kind of gets back to the to the fourth law that we talked about, about personal contact, you know, nurture that relationship and then follow up. And it may be an email message. It may be an email. I, I would avoid the calling side of things. That's just really hard. It's not that, you know, CIOs don't like the phone. It, it's just really hard to, you know, it adds additional workload and typically it's fielded by someone. So, I would look for opportunities to follow up. And I think the most important thing is, you know, you should really bring something to the table. So if you're going to reach out to a prospect in government, reach out with something that adds value to them, not just yourself. And so I think that's the key. So if you look at, you know, cold emails and even cold calls, I mean, sometimes they're a necessity, depending on your sales strategy, bring something to the table that's valuable for both sides so that it's mutually beneficial if that contact engages with you. And I think if you can do that, those emails will feel a lot less cold and those calls will feel a lot less cold as well. A lot of people in the registration process were focused on gaining trust during the RFP process. Uh, and, you know, kind of how, how do they engage? And I think it, that tied in perfectly to that, to that fourth law about personal contact matters, but, but trying to get advice on where to step in so they don't violate any procurement rules, but still be engaged. So Terry, you read thoughts on kind of how industry should think about being engaged during the RFP process? Well, I think two things, Joe. I think one is that they need to take a look at when that RFP process is going to happen. And in many cases, you're going to know when an existing contract is going to come up, you know, when the state's going to be looking for uh, a particular solution. I mean, that's not necessarily true on a new solution, but, um, you know, it, it does give you some information. So that's number one that you really need to be way ahead of that and not 
uh, limit to when that RFP is actually going to come out. The second thing is that I wouldn't actually talk about the RFP. Mm. I would talk about it more in terms of, you know, you know, understand that you're looking for this kind of technology solution. Uh, you know, here's the, the business problem that it appears that you're looking to solve. And here's how you know, my company can come in and either offer a, a helpful solution or a helpful service, or maybe even in some cases, a different way of looking at that business problem so that it gives you an opportunity to show thought leadership without necessarily making it look like, hey, I'm only interested in you when an RFP comes out, you know, and it's the business the way that you've defined it. The last thing I'd say, Joe, is that if you approach it that way, sometimes you actually can shape the thinking around indirectly around the way that that RFP might come out. Dustin, I know you have something to, to add here as well, so I'll let you chime in. Yeah, I think looking back to our first law around, you know, governments do business with companies of, you know, they trust. And, and, um, and I think when it comes to building trust, we've found that there's three main elements to that. I mean, number one, you have to have brand awareness. You know, government needs to know that your brand is established and that, you know, you're around and that you have, you know, uh, you have a, a good kind of reputation in the market. Number two, you have to have demonstrable traction. So this is really important, especially when it comes to like referrals, you know, have case studies and other types of content pieces that show that you've got success and that you've got wins under your belt and that your clients that you're engaging with are successful. And number three, and, and I think it's the most important aspect of building trust is have a point of view. So don't have generic kind of messaging or marketing material about what you do, but have really a point of view about how government agencies need to be engaging with you know whatever technology or service that you have bring a point of view to the table because it will help with that trust side of things and help them better understand what you do and kind of to terry's earlier point what you don't do i'm, I'm actually going to take a question from the audience here that that came in that i think is relevant to the last couple of slides um, what about sending your prospect uh, a sample of your work now that could be uh, you know, the technology that could be could be non-technology, depending if you know if you're dealing with uh, goods that you manufacture. Uh, is that problematic? Is that uh, a, a wise thing to do, um, Dustin? I'll toss that to you. I think you just want to be careful when it comes to sending physical items to government. A lot of states, a lot of municipalities have ethics laws regarding what they can accept. You know, some states are very strict and, you know, they can't accept anything. They, they can't, you know, you can't take them out to eat without them paying for their own side of the meal. So I think, you know, when you look at doing something like that at scale, it can become problematic when it comes to what it is that you're sending them and, and not going over, you know, those thresholds. And they vary, but, you know, a lot of times it, it can be as little as $15. Look at the, the gifting laws. A lot of them will adhere to the federal gifting laws as, as a minimum, but to Dustin's point, they'll vary across, you know, states and cities and counties. So another one came out a couple times in the last couple webinars is ROI tools and calculators. A lot of industry representatives have those on, the, on their websites. People want to know, are those useful? Are public sector officials using them? Julia, was this something when you went out to do your, do your research, was this something that you looked for, that you, you, you leveraged or your team leveraged? I think it really depended on the project. And so if we were doing an analysis, for example, we were building our, our regional mall and we were looking for ways to cross compare, it was very um, effective to, to use that. Um, but it's a project specific tool or calculator and very useful when it was applicable. Um, but I also wanna make a distinction when the tool is to educate me and help me do my job better and serve the public, um, very effective. When the tool is a sales pitch embedded in an ROI tool, not so effective. So help me do my job better by educating me with these ROI tools and calculators, um, but don't embed a sales pitch within it. How can I ask for a testimonial? Uh, what might have been the top question outside of cold calls. So Tara, I'm gonna toss this one to you. <laughs> How can an industry you know, vendor, maybe someone that you've worked with that was successful, how do they go about asking a testimonial and doing that in the right way? Well, you know, I think that most CIOs are very interested in being able to talk about a success story. So I don't think it's so much a testimonial. I think that what I would talk to uh, my technology partners is to say, you know, I'm happy to talk about what was actually done 
what was actually implemented, but not in a way that's going to make it sound like I'm promoting the product. And, and this is back to that concept of building trust by virtue of getting peer referrals. So I think that if the comments are around that peer information sharing, then you'll get some traction and I wouldn't mind doing it. Um, but if it's more, if I was approached as a, we want you to say why our product is great or our service is great, then um, you know, government officials can't really do that. I mean, it gets back into actually an ethics question. Mm -hmm. As far as a testimonial, I think the more specific um, the question can be, so limit the scope. It's not an endorsement company-wide, but it's a very specific um, statement. And also let the government official know what it, the testimonial will be used for. So where are you placing the quote or the commentary so that they know the purpose? Um, and is it something that has been in the public record? So can I look up the project or the service or the success story? Um, you know, was it discussed at a city council meeting or a county commission? Um, is it a public facing project? And that helps the government official be covered um, and telling the story as Terry described. There's a question here, but how do I best reach local government officials? And, and to continue on to that, it, it, this was about scale. How do I reach a large number of, of government officials with the message that, uh, that I have? Uh, Dustin, you spent a, a fair amount of time engaging local government, government officials and, and working with organizations that want to engage them. What have you seen emerge as, as best practices for those that want to scale into the local government market? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I think, you know, there's over 90,000 local government agencies, you know, 19,000 plus cities. So as you said, it's definitely a scale game. So you have to do things from a marketing standpoint that scale in themselves. So, you know, webinars are great examples of that, digital content. Uh, other great examples of that, you know, I still think you have to have that personal contact, but it's a little bit harder to be in 90,000 different agencies across the country. So you want to find strategic opportunities to build traction in person and then, you know, educate the market and nurture the market using digital as kind of a platform. I mean, at eRepublic, we run something called Digital Communities, which is really a program designed to help connect uh, communities across the country, these local government agencies, but also industry to the table and, and help them scale as part of that. So I think look for programs like that. Look for opportunities to use digital marketing strategies as an opportunity to educate the market in mass. And then as you as they start to engage with your content, as they start to engage with your brand, find opportunities to make that more personal to them um, as you nurture that relationship. All right, I'm going to continue on with the, this question before we go to go to the audience here. And Dustin, you just hit on it a little bit, but what types of marketing content are, are government leaders consuming? So Julie, I'm gonna let you take the lead on this one first. Uh, from your past experience, what were you likely to pick up and pick up and read? Uh, vendor content, uh, otherwise, uh, what, what caught your attention? Um, well, first of all, it, it went with the projects that were the priorities of the jurisdictions that I was working in. So if we're working on a development project, I'm going to pick up um, marketing content that's specific to that. So it's, it's jurisdiction to jurisdiction, what the priorities are. But I also think that um, what catches the eye is something that's very um, informative and describes solutions. It's not just spending three pages of a four-page brochure on the problem. We can all define the challenges and the problem. If the marketing content describes the solutions, I am much more likely to pick that up as are other government leaders, I believe. Can I just go back, Joe, to our original conversation? Um, I'll tend to pick up a um, in sort of information item if it in fact includes what someone has done. So, you know, something that a peer has done, something that another state has done, and something particularly that's a little bit different or that's innovative, if that's kind of the lead, then you get in and you actually read it to understand what it was. And then from there can go to what the specifics are of the technology or solution. So that example really makes a big difference. All right, Dustin. <clears throat> I think on this one, number one, it's got to be educational. So whether it's a market overview or whether it's something that provides the macro trends, do something that can be a resource for your contacts in government that you're engaging with. Help them understand the bigger picture landscape that you're operating in. 
And you as an industry, you know, individual, you operate in that. So you're an expert in what's going on. So educational is key, make sense of the market for them. And number two, it's got to be actionable. It's got to be something that they can actually consume and it empowers them to act. And, you know, that might be in our last implementation, these are the five common things that people did before they started implement. It might be guides about what they should consider before the RFP, but find ways to make that content actionable for who you're targeting within the public sector. And sometimes, you know, that's going to vary based on positions. We talk about, you know, the government space being made up of, of multiple points of influence. So you might, you know, have the CIO as one of the main targets that you're going after, but also look at developing content that's actionable for some of those other titles that are involved in the process so that, you know, if someone is engaging, they have material that they can use to help influence and, and you know, move things along in the process. Yeah, and I'll add to that, Dustin. I really like that comment because, that says that it isn't going to only be one type of media or one type of approach. So for instance, the technical folks might be much more interested in printed material, material that goes into a little bit more depth, where a senior level official might really be interested in a fairly short description that catches their attention. And then it either gets referred one way or another, right? The person at the top, might effectively say, gee, I read this article and get to the technical folks and say, can you find out more about it? Or it can go the other way where the technical folks read some of the more detailed content and then bring it back to leaderships and say, gee, I think we ought to you know, take a look at this more closely. All right, guys, this is the, the fun, exciting part of the webinar. Beyond the questions that you submitted to us during the registration process, now is your chance to, to fire away your questions in the Q&A pane and we'll do our best to knock them down. Many of you have already submitted questions, so we're gonna dive right in. Some of these questions are, are, are very specific and, and some are a bit more big picture. Um, what state governments have more flexibility around procurement for pilot programs, specifically around technology? Are there any states that you would think are, are more innovative or willing to help prove concepts? Um, so maybe, Terry, I know you do a lot, of, a lot of work in states. Maybe you can comment to some states that are maybe leading in that area. Well, I think a couple of states, uh, Joe, clearly I don't know all of the pilot programs, but um, in a conversation that we had at an event that we had last week, I was struck by uh, what Stu Davis has done, for instance, in Ohio, in that he actually has an innovation fund. He actually has money set aside to actually be able to do pilot programs. Um, Michigan has done something similar where they actually have funding set aside in order to, uh, again, be able to do that. Um, and then look for uh, states where they actually have someone designated with that title. So for instance, Georgia, uh, and um, Dustin I know has worked with them very closely, they have a chief digital officer. And so while Georgia may not have specific funds set aside, they have an individual that's very focused on it. And then what he's doing is to work within the existing uh, financial uh, structure that Georgia has uh, and actually, you know, finding money to be able to do some, you know, really interesting and innovative things. So Dustin, I know you're aware of a couple of other states that have similar kind of arrangements. Yeah, and I think this is one too uh, that, you know, looking at uh, GovTech and looking at governing, you know, we cover a lot of what's happening with pilots. We've covered a lot, like for instance, the state of Illinois has done a ton on blockchain pilots and they're really looking at decentralized technology and launching pilot initiatives around there. So look at, you know, consuming some of that media because you'll see opportunities and you'll see the types of pilots that people are engaging with today in the public sector. The other thing is, you know, from a state standpoint, you know, this is a digital state survey year. Um, and so I would look to the results from that survey and look at, you know, some of the highest performing states that are out there. And you'll notice some nuances with how they engage with especially emerging tech. And states like Utah, for example, have been doing a lot with Alexa. Georgia's done the same thing. And so find states that are already doing that today and that they're already, you know, experimenting with some of the technology and find ways that uh, you might be able to help them advance some of those existing projects or, you know, maybe connect the dots for them on the back end. Uh, and show them opportunities that, that they may not know exist. If you're looking for kind of leading innovative states, if you go, if you do a Google search for the digital states survey, you will see the states that receive high letter grades for that survey. If you do the same thing for our digital cities survey and digital counties survey, you will see those ranked out. In fact, we just released the rankings for our digital counties survey uh, this week, and that'll give you an indication of kind of who's leading across the country. Another question came in here. 
where are decision makers going to find information? Are they going to Google? Are they turning to trade publications? Where do they consume information? Um, and how effective are conferences in learning about new technology? So uh, obviously not to do too many, uh, you know, too much self-promotion here, but uh, we, we know and uh, with, with confidence that they are reading government technology magazine and, and government, governing magazine in terms of uh, where they turn to to find out the kind of bright and shining lights of uh, innovation and progress across, across the country. And, and we do, you know, 100 plus events across the country, bringing both industry and public sector. Um, our research also validates this. My team does numerous uh, quantitative surveys of government officials. And I can tell you in, in rank order that they are reading these industry publications. They are attending the events that, that make sense to them, to Julia's point earlier, when it aligns to a project or a focus area that they have. And the, the other piece um, is, you know, webinars, um, heavily uh, in, into uh, attending webinars. But there's a third piece to this question, is what's actually gonna grab people's attention at a conference? And I think that's important. So Dustin, I'm gonna let you expand on that. Yeah, I, th I think that's really important. I mean, conferences provide an opportunity to you know, build relationships, but also you know, influence and, and help educate the market on what's possible. And I think the key here is not just talking about what your technology or what your service can do, but really using examples from customers that are in government and the, the results from that and you know, providing an opportunity for those customers to also tell this story. I mean, government is, is definitely a, a tight-knit community, even though, even though there's a lot of them, that referral aspect is so important. So use events as a way to help unpack that story and also provide a platform for your customers if they're willing to talk about it. Let them talk about what they're doing and you know, what the results are from using your technology or service. And Joe, I'd like to add to that. Um, also for conferences, you know, strategically, if you're giving a presentation and you're educating the public, but it's also, um, as Dustin said, an opportunity to build relationships. And don't be shy about making appointments. Look through the attendee list before you get there and make 15-minute appointments to either meet with the elected, appointed, or staff members. They are there to not just sit in rooms and listen to presentations, but to also um, do a deeper dive and build relationships individually. So if you're strategic in advance and, you know, call up the office, make an appointment for while you're both in the same place at the same time, and, and do a series of those 15-minute introductory appointments. So this one came through here. This is a Pretty specific, but I think it gets at a, at a big picture issue that sometimes many companies grapple with. If there's an RFP that was recently awarded, and that RFP may be a, a sole source, but even if, when it's not, when is it worth appealing or protesting the intent to award um, if they feel like they, they can meet the criteria? Uh, I know in the past we've talked about that being a, a a tactic that should be used extremely rarely. Um, and if you were on, I think it was our previous episode, we talked about public sector having a long memory. Um, so Terry, I'm gonna toss this to you as someone who's probably come across this several times in, uh, in both states that you worked in. Is there ever a right time and what would you encourage this person to do? Well, Joe, there is a right time. I, I think to say that there isn't, um, a time or point in time to do an appeal um, or to do a protest would be unfair to the procurement process. I mean, the, the process is there for a reason. I think a couple of things. Um, just be very careful to use it very specifically where you do have uh, an issue with either the way that the procurement was done or you feel that the way that um, the decision was made perhaps didn't consider all the factors. So, you know, be very specific about, you know, why you're protesting and what was included. The second thing is be very, very careful not to just do blanket protests. There are companies out there that pretty much for a very large percentage of procurements that they participate in, they just protest for the sake of protesting. And that will get you a reputation that is very, very, very difficult to overcome. So again, uh, you know, be very specific. The last thing I'd say is that 
you know, while you want to talk with the technology folks or the CIO or the organization that put out the RFP, make sure that you also are talking with the procurement professionals, understanding what the process is, understanding how it works, because when it gets down to something like the protest, they actually will be running that protest. It won't be the technology folks. And so, Again, you want to be able to do it respectfully. You want to be able to follow the rules. And you'll be working more with the procurement professionals as opposed to the actual technology folks. Guys, keep, keep these questions coming. So the more tactical that you can get around your sales and marketing efforts, uh, please feel free to submit those types of questions. There's one here staying on the track around procurement. How do leverage procurement agreements such as NASPO, CMAS, you know, others, how much do they factor into the government decision-making process? Dustin, I'm going to let you take a stab at that one. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to these contract vehicles, you know, it's important to look for the right vehicles based on the agencies that you're targeting. And, you know, when it comes down to it, there's a lot that are out there. But, you know, the more you're on, the less friction there is in the process. That doesn't mean that you need to go and secure, you know, individual relationships with all of them. But I think this is where it's also important to understand the landscape that you're operating in and the types of agencies that you're going after. You know, are they agencies that procure off of a state contract? You know, are you focusing on Texas, for instance, and, you know, they're all a part of the Department of Information Resources, DIR. Is that the contract vehicle you need to look at being on or maybe getting a, a reseller to kind of help you hop on? So I think it's contextual to the areas that you're targeting, the levels of government that you're targeting. And so understanding those jurisdictions and how they buy is incredibly important. Um, and, and these are, you know, important factors in the decision-making process. For, uh, for government agencies. I mean, think of them as, as vehicles to remove friction from the buying process. So Dustin, I'm gonna stick with you on this one here. How do you approach a government official with emerging technology um, and that concept? I mean, the individual here references open source, but, but I think the, the bigger picture is how do you look at these emerging technologies and, and either get them for consideration so you're not dismissed at the first mention? of some sort of new technology? Yeah, this is a great question. This is an issue I see oftentimes with companies, especially when you think about things like artificial intelligence. You know, I hear all too many times of, you know, CIOs that have a mayor that goes to a conference and hears about artificial intelligence and then they come back and they're like, all right, we need to implement this across the board. And, you know, so I think this kind of goes back to that theme of, you know, really looking at ways to educate your buyers and, and recognizing that there's multiple people involved in the buying process and providing vehicles that explain it. Like the CIO will understand the value of open source and they'll understand, you know, we're, we've kind of moved as a market beyond some of the original concerns with that as an approach, but some of the other buyers may not understand that. And so that's where it's important to help them see what other cities and other counties and other states are doing with it, help them understand the benefits of it, help them understand the value in a way that's contextual to what they care about and, and what they're most interested in. And so, you know, if it's elected, it might be economic development and finding ways to, you know, drive progress there. Uh, if it's a CIO, it might be, you know, taking an enterprise approach to technology and helping them understand how they can accomplish the mission that they're setting out to do using that technology. So I think, you know, stick to it, finding ways to educate those multiple points of influence in the buying process would probably be uh, my, uh, my answer to that one. I think another thing, Dustin, that is really important as you're talking, particularly with technology folks about emerging technology, is that there is a tendency to have the conversation about emerging technology and then assume because the technology person doesn't jump on it that either they're too old, too antiquated, or too siloed, or too something. And in many cases, they're trying to figure out, okay, where does this fit? And how would I actually implement it? And how would I actually maintain it? So I think that helping them think through those problems of how do I actually take this technology, which I may also think is a super great idea, but how do I actually make it fit? And how do I implement it in a way that it has business value? So we're going to come back to that because there's another question. Uh, there's another question here that, that aligns to that. Um, but before we do that, while we're waiting for other questions to come in, I thought it would be important to just kind of cover what we do for those of you that aren't on that don't know on the phone. Um, I obviously represent our, our market research group, and, and we're here to help you know before you go. That's whether that's defining your target buyer, pinpointing the jurisdictions that will have the highest value and, and the quickest opportunities to uh, 
you know, building the right message. But beyond that, we, we as an organization can build the content that resonates with your audience, uh, give you an, a venue to connect and tell that story at one of our many events and help you build your brand. And then finally, obviously, uh, if you need to build that pipeline, well, that we can help uh, around lead conversion and generation. So if any of these kind of areas interest you, uh, if you'd be looking looking to find out more about our market research, our custom content capabilities, our brand building and advertising, the events where we bring together industry and government officials to our lead generation and conversion. You can take a moment to fill this poll out. We would greatly appreciate that. And we'll come back to get taking more questions here in a moment. But while you're doing that, we have one more poll question for you. And that is, um, we do a number of, of monthly market insights newsletters where myself and our publisher, uh, Mark Funkhauser, former mayor and state auditor, writes our governing market insights. Um, but every month we kind of pull together what we've seen over the last 30 days, the trends, the issues, the investment streams and the priorities, and put that in an easy to consume uh, news, email newsletter. So if you want more insights on the GovTech market, you can subscribe to the Gov GovTech market insights newsletter or on the governing um, market insights newsletter that'll kind of let you know what's happening at the policy and state and local level. You can subscribe to both of them or none of them, but if you take a moment to do that, we would greatly appreciate that. So now let's get back to your question. So we were just talking a moment ago about the complexities of dealing with state and local officials around emerging technology. There was a question here about why are government agencies so complex with their integrations? Why do they want a system that can fit and do everything um, when many of these departments and agencies are so different and nothing is ever off the shelf a right fit? So I think that fits into the, to the emerging technology piece and, and really understanding the unique pain points and issues of, of each department and agency. But um, how, you know, do you guys get a sense, and maybe I'll, tear, I'll ask this to you first, that you know, government officials really do want a system that does every, everything out of the box? Well, unfortunately, Joe, yes, in many cases. Um, one of the challenges for any technology professional uh, actually in state government is really convincing the various agencies that they can use a common system. They don't each have to have their own unique HR system. They don't each have to have their own unique finance system. So in many cases, it isn't the technology person that's creating the complexity, but it's rather the feeling within the individual departments that they're unique and they have to do something different. And that is a challenge as you're selling into the market that you really do have to recognize and face even though it isn't necessarily the case. And again, Joe, you know, back to kind of our comments that we've been talking about, sometimes it's important to be able to go in and actually reference success story. Um, you know, very often, for instance, in cases, you'll actually have a department stand up and say, well, because I'm receiving federal money, I have to do it in a particular way. And in fact, in some cases, I would go to another state and find out that they were actually not doing it um, in the way that it was referred to by a particular agency. And then I could come back and say, well, wait a minute, you know, you're giving me an interpretation of what I have to do from a federal perspective, but in fact, other states are doing it differently. So, you know, I think it's not just from a technology perspective, but it's also just this feeling that departments want to have autonomy, they want to have control. They are doing fantastic work for the citizens of their jurisdiction, um, but it's hard for them sometimes to recognize that they can do things in a common way and they can be more efficient. So uh, a question came in about someone trying to find their, their niche market um, and sell, sell to government. Um, in this case, they, they do some software and hardware consulting, but um, they, they find themselves butting up against a lot of the bigger name vendors when they go in to engage a state or a city or county. So what is the best way for them maybe to move downstream to create recurring customers? Dustin? Yeah, I think this goes back to our trust conversation. So find a way to build market awareness. So use digital media and advertising and content as a way to you know, start to build market awareness. Uh, show some of the traction that you have. So look at some of those clients that you're engaging with today. You know, it might be an opportunity to get a testimonial from them uh, that you can leverage within your marketing efforts. Maybe some referrals that can come from that. 
And then number three, have a point of view, you know, and have a point of view as to what you're helping government accomplish, you know, what you're, what you're passionate about and what you can help them achieve, what challenges you solve. And I think when you combine those three things together, uh, you, you can find a, a really great way to start to build awareness and, and trust within the space to kind of scale. And I think, you know, going after a niche is a smart starting point. You know, find a way to, you know, maybe it's just mid-market, you know, government agencies that are smaller. Find a way to build uh, traction within that vehicle because they're very tight-knit communities in themselves. And then expand from that and then find ways to use that as a way to build other opportunities. Um, I think, you know, the lesson here is don't try to be everything to everybody, uh, especially up front, but find ways to kind of leverage a core group of individuals. And, you know, oftentimes mid-market is a very underserved community, so that might be a great starting point. They also have considerable IT budgets. I think it's $10 billion annual spend a year is just in our mid-market agencies. And that's something we can help with as well. I mean, we reach 95% of the mid-market cities that are out there. So uh, we, we'd love to you know, have a conversation and talk about ways that we could help you accelerate that. What is the best way to break in as a supplier to state and local government? And what's the best way to find RFPs? I'll handle the latter part of that question. Um, in fact, you should check out our GovTech Navigator. Um, you can get that by going onto the, the GovTech uh, website. It's right there on the, the main page. You're going to governmentnavigator.com. And that will actually track all technology-related RFPs, bids, awards, procurement data, and a ton of other market intelligence. But one of the ways that you can best break in is when you're looking at those, uh, those uh, procurements, if you find relevant ones to you, you can register as a vendor. So you need to register as a vendor, and I think you can execute on Dustin's advice that he just gave in terms of, of building a message. But anything else there, uh, Julia, Terry, Dustin, about the best way to break in? Well, Joe, I guess I, I just start out and pipe in. Um, I think it really is starting out picking a few markets, whether that's at a state level or a local level, and get some material out there. Um, you know, pick a few conferences to attend, um, you know, get your name out there, get people to know what your solution is, where your solution fits, and then, you know, be able to build on that. I think another thing, back to the niche market question, um, is that sometimes it's good to start where you live, if you will, because many states and local jurisdictions are looking to do economic development, and Julie can address this in their individual areas. And so if you're looking to get peer references, you're looking to get credibility, very often you're going to have a better chance in your local jurisdiction as a local business, and then be able to build on that credibility with um, other states and you know other uh, government areas that may not necessarily be in your particular jurisdiction so those are a couple of ways that i think that uh, you can think about how to break in so, so these are great answers but these are some really great questions here's a great question around cloud any suggestions on how to best educate government buyers about real cloud solutions versus hosted solutions uh, some of the other bigger vendors out there are promoting uh, cloud or, or uh, cloud in a way that is confusing the buying team. So Dustin, um, what are your thoughts here? I think this kind of goes back to our conversation on open source and artificial intelligence. You know, find a way to help educate those multiple points of influence as to what cloud is. I mean, you know, one cloud doesn't fit all. We know there's a multitude of different configurations. But I think this is a vehicle where you can help educate people on what they're actually doing. They may think that they're in the cloud and they're actually not really in the cloud or they're in that kind of a quasi or hybrid, you know, setting. So I think, you know, putting some definition uh, in place of, you know, what it is, uh, what your core benefits are, and maybe even educating them on all of the different, you know, types of clouds there are and what structure is best for what types of use case, I think might be a great way to educate the market build awareness of your brand, you know, build trust in the market because you're not just talking about yourself, but you're also talking about, you know, the other things that are out there that, you know, that they're running up against that they may be using in one department and not another. So I think, you know, that education play is going to be really important there. Great. This is a, maybe a, a federal question, but it may also apply to state and local. Um, what percentage of opportunities, services opportunities in the federal sector do you feel require security clearances? Uh, but more importantly, how, how can a firm overcome that barrier to entry? Can they? Well, Joe, um, you really can't overcome it. I mean, from a federal government perspective, if in fact they have said, 
that you need either a classified or you know in the kind of even smaller percentage you need top secret clearance um, those are very specific requirements and it's very difficult to to overcome them um, number one um, and so secondly you know you really do then need to take a look at if you want to play in that market with those clearances uh, there are individuals who are in government that have those clearances there are partners um, who actually have those clearances um, and I would look at that ahead of necessarily taking an individual within the company and actually getting that clearance um, so it's a it's difficult and it's tricky but it's all around the you know handling of information and what information is included now the last thing I will tell you Joe is that Certainly there are RFPs out there from a federal government perspective that do look at clearances where you say, do they really need the clearances or not? You know, it tends to be a bit of the boilerplate that's in there. Um, and, you know, in those particular instances, you can give it a shot to try to explain why you can perform the service without that, but it, it is a difficult barrier. All right. Uh, will most government agencies bypass the RFP process with NASPO to save money and time if they are able to? Every state, city, county has, has a preference, uh, a contract preference. I think that if it saves them time and money, that there's a high likelihood that they're going to use NASPO or whatever vehicle that accomplishes that task. Um, are there reasons yep. that they might want to go to bid instead if they can get better pricing um, but Dustin Terry Julia any, any any additions there? yeah I mean I think this is where getting ahead of the procurement process may allow them to bypass that altogether and use a contract mm -hmm. vehicle to get your technology or service um, you know up where I looked for opportunities to go through a formal procurement is typically where I wanted to get several different you know vendors or industry partners take on how to solve a specific problem so I might yeah. start with an RFI and look at you know mapping out you know how I should address this problem itself. So if you can do that at the beginning of the process and, and bake that into your marketing efforts at the beginning, you you might be able to avoid that process altogether. I think there's you know opportunities to go to bid, especially you know larger contracts. Uh, you you might want to go to bid to uh, you know to of course maximize you know the value for the taxpayers uh, and any perception about you know preferential treatment. But I think you know find ways to get ahead of it and uh, and you know educate the market as to how they should be approaching problem solving. Excellent. Well, that, that takes us to the top of the hour. And I want to be respectful of our time commitment. In closing, I want to thank everyone for joining us on today's webinar. I want to thank Terry, Dustin, and Julia for agreeing to participate. Uh, thanks again, audience, for making this a fun and interactive session and submitting such great questions. Uh, I know I personally had fun. Hopefully that came across. Everyone have a wonderful day.